Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Economist. In London, this is The Economist, and you're listening to Babbage, a weekly conversation on science and technology. I'm Tim Cross, the science correspondent. On this show, we'll take a closer look at mobile phones. We've got two stories. First, how they can help in a humanitarian crisis. And secondly, how big cell phone operators are facing competition from a wave of upstarts who want to use Wi-Fi instead of cell networks to make your phone do its thing. So let's start with you, Ken. Um, Obviously, mobiles are useful for all kinds of things, but the data that they generate can be extremely valuable to to all kinds of people. Um, And anyone who's used GPS will know they can tell you where you are and where you're going, which is very useful in, in ordinary life. But in recent weeks, people have been using it for disaster relief to identify how people are moving around and, and population movements in, in Nepal after the, uh, the big earthquake we had there recently. Yeah, that's exactly right. So the great thing about mobile phones is that we can use them and we get all the benefits from that. But you're right that just by dint of them connecting to their base station, the cell tower, to say where they are, they generate lots of data. And the data indicates, in some respects, who makes a call when it's used and who receives the call and for how long that call is, and you can make inferences about it. But you also get the geolocation data just from the cell phone towers. Not even You don't even need GPS for that. And it basically tells you where the phone is, uh, where it's going, how long it takes to get there. And this can be really useful in times of crises. So what researchers at the Swedish nonprofit called Flowminder did is they got the data from one of the large cell phone operators in Nepal, and they could identify that after the earthquake, how many people entered into Kathmandu for relief workers or people from outside looking for loved ones and trying to support the relief efforts, as well as people who left and where they went. And you can see on a map that they did in in quasi-real time how far people got to, so people who were in Kathmandu went, and actually you see a, a huge sum of people heading into, streaming into the southeast of the country, and very few getting to, into the northeast. But you'd be really surprised. A lot of those people who were going southeast reached the border provinces. They didn't actually stay more closer to the capital city. Really interesting, particularly because this is the sort of thing that you never would have been able to identify before without this technology. It would have been too difficult to do. So even in a, in a fairly poor country like Nepal, this kind of technology gives you basically a God's eye view of what, what your population are up to, even when a lot of the other infrastructure has been knocked out. Well, exactly right. Now, of course, it's not perfect, right? It's not like everybody has a cell phone, but you make a much better inference in terms of population mobility through this technique than without this technique. You wrote about this before, didn't you, Um, when the Ebola outbreak in Africa was at its height. And then people wanted access to the data, but uh, it wasn't actually shared. So does this mean are things changing now? Is is it easier to get hold of this stuff these days? What a great question. You know, believe it or not, no. It turns out that it is as idiotic today as it was back then. The most effective way that we could staunch communicable disease outbreaks like Ebola by knowing 
where people are, where they're headed, the transport networks they take, where those transport hubs are, whether they stay overnight there or they make it in a day's journey, and where they're headed and how long it'll take them to get there. All of that very valuable data for epidemiologists is not being used and it's not being shared. It's a one of the easiest ways that we could staunch these diseases, but we don't have the infrastructure in place to do it. It's really a tragedy. So if it's so obvious and so simple, why isn't it happening? Are people worried about privacy? Well, you know, privacy is a part of it, but it's not the main thing. Um, keep in mind, it's data that companies are using all the time to target advertisements or improve their network operations. So there's nothing sacrosanct about the data itself. The real problem is there is a policy inertia, for so to speak. Because this sort of technique has not been done before, it's hard to get the administrative structures and the bureaucracy set up to make it happen. In the case of the operators, it's just a cost. The data is not in the right format. The public might not understand it, so they're afraid of the backlash. In the case of the regulators, regulators everywhere is slow and efficient, but particularly in places like Africa, they will lack the competence to make this happen. Heads of state who would otherwise order it don't understand the value of it because it's so new. And it's not for lack of trying. The United Nations itself had meetings last year where the World Economic Forum was there and the Gates Foundation and others, Flowminder, the the nonprofit, as well as others, all tried to uh, rally the bureaucratic infrastructures of the telecom authority and the operators to share this data, but to no avail because there's just a lack of leadership. So you can see why this sort of thing would be really useful, as, as you say, in a crisis. But um, just going back to privacy, I mean, there is a real issue there, isn't there? I mean, if I lived in, say, South Sudan or I lived in Rwanda and could remember what happened there, you know, just, just a, a couple of decades ago, you can see why people might be a bit reluctant to give some central authority the ability to track large numbers of people anywhere in the country, right? I mean, this, is, this isn't just a theoretical worry. Yeah, absolutely. Privacy is a real problem and it has to be addressed. But the point is we have to address the problem. It cannot be an excuse not to act and not to use this data. And as you say, it's especially a problem in parts of Africa that are fresh from tribal conflicts. But everyone cares about this everywhere around the world. What we probably need are rules governing four things. The first one is that the data has to be anonymous. We don't have it down to the individual level. Secondly, the data should be aggregated. You handle it as bunches, a thousand people here, a thousand there. You can, it has to be used by approved researchers, a sort of certification needs to be involved, and it can't be put to other uses. Now, the really interesting part of it, and why this is really a tragedy that the data is not being used, is that the mobile industry's trade body, the GSMA, has already created the standards for this sort of sharing to happen. And in certain instances, usually retrospectively, we have used the data for tracking malaria in Kenya, for understanding the effect of health warnings during the swine flu epidemic in 2009 in Mexico. But what we don't have is the protocol in place to actually share this data in the midst of a crisis when it really counts. Let's hope it doesn't require another even bigger disaster before people start taking this stuff seriously. Well, the big problem, Tim, of course, is that unless we do this, what we're saying is that we are valuing the right to privacy higher than the right to life. And that is lunacy. Great. Thanks very much, uh, Ken. Now, staying on the topic of mobile phones, but uh, turning to you, Ludwig, uh, listeners will probably remember several years ago when Skype got really big and suddenly you were able to make really cheap phone calls using your internet connection rather than a standard phone line. 
Something similar is about to happen in the mobile phone business, I think. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, and, and so, so what's happening is, you know, your smartphone has two radios. It's, it has a, a Wi-Fi radio and the radio that hooks up to the cellular network. And usually when you make a call, this, the smartphone connects to, your, to the cellular network or the mobile network in Britain. But that's relatively expensive or very expensive in some countries, especially in, in the United States. So some clever startup have said, why, why don't we kind of start out with the Wi-Fi network? And then if we need cellular connections, we, we switch to them. So a company like Republic Wireless or, or Freedom Pop, they, they have developed technology that does exactly that. So if you subscribe to them, your smartphone connects first to a Wi-Fi hotspot. And if that's not possible, if you undergo, then it connects to, the, to your cellular network. And the, the result is that, that these plans, these contracts with these companies are much cheaper. So it's the same basic idea, as we said at the start, as Skype. You use a different network to carry the data. You send your voice over a wireless, a Wi-Fi network rather than the cellular network. The idea, I guess, is that this just makes it easier for the end user, more transparent. You don't need a separate application. You just use it as standard on your phone. Is that right? No, it, it kind of depends. I mean, it depends on the companies. The trick, what, what these companies have done, develop technology, how to kind of switch between Wi-Fi and the cellular network, which was more diff- difficult before because the phones weren't powerful enough, the technology wasn't there, and they've now solved that problem more or less. And so for Republic Wireless, you need special phones still. Uh, you need to buy their phones, which have been adapted in the ways that they can make do that handover easily. They have only two models, unfortunately. Uh, but Freedom Pop, for example, uses a software-only solution. You download an app, and then with that, you can basically use any, any uh, kind of phone. Okay. And how do the existing mobile phone companies, they must see this as quite a threat, right? Because if people start using the Wi-Fi stuff first, they'll be spending many fewer minutes connected to the cellular networks. Yes. that If a lot of people would use that, that type of service, that would, would put a lot of pressure on the pricing. Uh, but what do they say? They say it's, it's not going to work. It's too cheap. It doesn't have enough capacity. You're going to have interference. All the things we've also heard uh, when, when, when Skype was uh, kind of uh, first being used, and rightly so, because uh, Skype in the beginning was very clunky, didn't really work, but see how, how, how good it can be today. And my guess is that with Wi-Fi first networks, the same thing is going to happen. The, the technology is going to improve. It's going to get easier, and, and at some point you won't be able to tell the difference between Wi-Fi connections and, and cellular connections in a, few, in a few years. The problem of the model is more that uh, uh, in order for these companies to work or to offer that service, they have to have a deal with real cellular network, with Sprint in the case of wireless, Republic uh, Wireless and uh, uh, Freedom Pop. So they, uh, what they call an MVNO deal. So they have to basically resell or buy capacity from these networks. And of course, if, if these new type of carriers became very big, then I think the willingness of, of the other carriers, the cellular carriers, to, to resell capacity would be diminished probably be cannibalizing their own businesses. Yes. And so I think there's there's a limit built into that business model of, of Wi-Fi first. But it's it's relatively successful in the U.S. I mean, Freedom Pop, I think, has nearly a million uh, or is approaching a million users. Uh, Republic Wireless, 350,000. I mean, that, that's small, but it puts pressure on on the high rates in the U.S. and will do, will do elsewhere. Great. Thanks very much, Ludwig. That's all for this episode. You've been listening to Babbage. For more news on science and technology, go to economist.com. In London, this is The Economist. The Economist. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com.